Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, February the 15th, 2024. Last month, we had an interesting show with the Italian journalist, the legendary Italian journalist, Mazio Mian. Uh, he had a cover piece in uh, last month's uh, Harper's uh, entitled Behind the New Iron Curtain, Caviar Counterculture and the Cult of Stalin Reborn. Mazio Mian spent a couple of months traveling through Russia, talking to ordinary Russians, if there's such a thing as an ordinary Russian. Um, and uh, what he wrote was intriguing on, on lots of levels that broke some of the conventions about miserable Russians in perpetual opposition to a certain Vladimir Putin. We're back to Russians today, but not Russians within Russia, Russians outside with my guest, uh, Paul Starobin. He's a very distinguished journalist. He's traveled all over the world, an expert on Russia. And he has a new book out, Putin's Exiles, Their Fight for a Better Russia. Um, and he, in this book, traveled around the world, particularly to bordering states on Russia, to talk to Russians exiles, Putin's exiles. And Paul is joining us from Massachusetts in Orleans, uh, Massachusetts, on the Cape Cod, uh, Paul, are there are there any uh, are there any Putin's exiles on Cape Cod? <laughs> it's a good question. None, none that I have run into. So, in all seriousness, this book is called Putin's Exiles: The Fight for a Better Russia. Are there many Russians overseas? Uh, when the when the war in Ukraine broke out initially, there are all sorts of reports in Western media of many young Russians fleeing to Western Europe and to neighboring states, um, former former states of the Soviet Union. What kind of numbers do we have in terms of Putin's exiles of Russians? About a million. I mean, it's difficult, of course, to arrive at the exact number, but I think that seems fair. And they didn't all come at the same time. And two or maybe three major waves, starting with the invasion, there were some Russians who escaped or left uh, Putin's... Uh, uh, Putin controlled Russia before the invasion, and I talked to some of those people as well. But the big numbers, certainly, uh, starting with the invasion, February twenty fourth, two thousand and twenty two, so nearly two years now. And the conventional narrative is that these tend to be young Russians, liberals, people who were mm -hmm. in large cities who were involved in. Mm global style jobs. Is that fair or is that an inaccuracy? I would say it. it there's more um, t texture and diversity to the group that we're calling the Putin's exiles. Initially, uh, there were large numbers from Moscow and St. Petersburg, which are the centers of liberal uh, opposition uh, to Putin and just liberal uh, values generally in a Western sense. And so you had a number of tech people also included there because those mm -hmm. are centers of the tech industry. But 
Uh, I met lots of people from uh, Siberia, for example. There's uh, there are a lot of uh, sometimes the further away you get from Moscow, you know, so you get people who are unhappy. This is an age-old Russian condition for various reasons with the center with Moscow, and not all of them young. I mean, yes, a number of them. Uh, some left because they're of military age for conscription, which they wanted to avoid. But I met in uh, Tbilisi, for example, the capital of Georgia, with several television journalists who left, and they were at least in their 50s, probably in their 60s. In the old days, uh, pre-Soviet days at least, one could be in one could be in internal exile yes. within the old Russian Empire. I assume that there's no such thing anymore in Putin's Russia of internal exiles. They all need to be overseas. Is that fair, or are there some exiles internally within Russia itself? I consider Alexei Navalny to be in internal exile, and there's some other journalists who are less prominent. Well, he's in jail, Navalny, so it's sort of... So, okay, when in the 19th century, when uh, Dostoevsky, a bunch of people got, quote-unquote, exiled to Siberia, there were, there were strict limits uh, set around their movements and how far they could go. And I would call that a form of, of exile. I guess we could debate that in my book, I, I say, uh, I talk about the traditional form of sort of internal or prison exile, and I do apply that to Navalny, who right now is in an incredibly remote place. It's, uh, you know, near the around the Arctic right, Circle Arctic region. Arctic Circle. Yeah, so I, I would call it. a joke in public from this he, exile. Yes, it's amazing how he's maintained his sense of humor. So uh, I, I would consider him to be in eternal exile imposed on him as opposed to self-exiled. I want to come back to Navalny later. Um, the book is called uh, Paul Putin's Exiles. Mm -hmm. Does that mean, just as Putin is often characterized um, as uh, egoist authoritarian, mm -hmm. that these people have left Russia because of Vladimir Putin, because of his system, because of his party, or because of simply the idea of Putin. I like the word system. Uh, I think that um, he cannot just be characterized as an authoritarian leader. He is an authoritarian leader. I think he is of a certain kind of czarist type leader, more quote unquote red, white, I'm sorry, than red. Uh, he does not have the formal title of a czar, of course, but uh, he's the president. He has made this alliance, which is an important alliance with the Russian Orthodox Church. I mean, he has all of the traditional sort of accoutrements of a czar, and it looks like he will be in his position for life, as far as we know. I mean, he's up for, quote unquote, election in the middle of March. They've already kicked off the only sort of anti-war opponent from the ballot. So there's no question that he will be returned to office. Uh, so yeah, I look at him in those terms. So Putin's exiles in that sense, the war intensified their opposition uh, to the Putin system or structure, as you put it, but it can be seen as very much a piece with it. Putin, for better or worse, of course, has appropriated the mantle of Russian nationalism, gone back mm -hmm. to the czars, gone back to many of the issues associated with Tsarist Russia. Yes. For his exiles, for his opponents, can, how, how do they struggle with the idea of 
pride in Russia and Russianness, Russian culture, Russian history, and their opposition to Putin himself and his system? Yeah, well, I think that's really quite a good question, and it can play out over a number of different dimensions. But I would say my idea of Russian or Russianness en encompasses Russian culture, Russian history. Uh, it's a much broader, of course, than the institution of the czar. So, and it certainly encompasses the Russian language, which is so distinctive uh, and s separates these people in many ways from everyone who does not speak it, although it's complicated and you do have Russian-speaking Ukrainians and so forth who do not see themselves as Russians. But Russians are bonded by traditions, by ties, you know, their, their music, uh, their humor, their jokes is a certain distinctive Russian humor, their methods of satire. I mean, Putin now uh, is being subject to all kinds of fairly merciless uh, satire by Russians in exile. And I would say it's a very Russian character. So this notion of Russianness embraces uh, a lot of different uh, facets. Putin is Russian of a kind, but so are the people who hate his guts and pray for the day that his train blows up with their help. Let me revise the question. Um, how are, how are, and I'm using this term from your book, how are Putin's exiles rethinking, rewriting, reorienting the idea of Russianness itself? In some ways, of course, this is history repeating itself back to the Slavophile Westerner debates of the 19th century and the mm -hmm. way in which Westerners, sometimes internal, sometimes exiled, were trying to reinvent what it meant to be a Russian in the 19th or 20th and now in the 21st centuries. Right. I don't know that the exiles have, have completely rethought the idea of what it means to be a Russian. I think they've thought quite a bit about what the Russian state now called the Russian Federation, the successor to the Soviet Union, should look like, should be like. And I think in that respect, they're generally united around the principle that it should be some form of a democratic or constitutional republic, perhaps a parliamentary republic in a European style. Now, um, Russia nominally today is such a republic, uh, but it's not just on paper, it's not really observed. They want to make it meaningful. So for example, there are uh, some, some exiles have sort of carved out a vision of a parliamentary republic that very much scales down the strong presidential system that was incorporated into the Russian Federation uh, at the start of the Federation, which was the collapse of the Soviet Union, Boris Yeltsin as the first president. And some of them think that was a mistake to make such a strong presidential system that Putin subsequently took advantage of. But I would say generally these ideas that are percolating around is to make Russian more of what we think of as a liberal society. There are also people, I talked to a Siberian nationalist. I mean, there are a running theme uh, in much of, of Russian thought and criticism is that Russia is so large that it's all but ungovernable. Uh, I mean, I've had that ex idea expressed to me actually by somebody who wants, who worked for Putin 
years ago. It's really difficult. But this kind of centralization that has characterized Russian governance is something that I think a lot of Putin's critics and the people I talked to in exile would like to, in some fashion, reform. Paul, you've noted there's a great deal of ideological, ethnic diversity amongst what you call Putin's exiles. What about when it comes to their narrative, their historical narrative of the last 100 or 200 years? Are they nostalgic for the Soviet Union, nostalgic for czarism, nostalgic for the six months of democracy in the between the first and the second Rus Russian revolutions, indeed nostalgic for Gorbachev and Yeltsin? Um, in general, no. I mean, I'm the older ones. I'm thinking now of this television journalism couple I talked to in Tbilisi. Maybe for some of that, Gorbachev, Perestroika, and, and Glasnost. But a lot of the people, and as, as you accurately noted, are, are of a younger generation, and so they don't have such strong memories of any of those times. And I just wouldn't characterize their disposition as nostalgic in the sense that they have a form of you know, homesickness, I guess, to translate that word literally. Uh, no, I think they're looking more towards the future. Their prevailing attitude is just one of sort of bafflement at one level that Russia is now where Russia is with Putin so entrenched as this kind of czar-like leader. And some hope, but also, you know, so, some dis discouragement about the way things that might go. So, yeah, you know, there's kind of a mix of um, attitudes there. I don't know that they've engaged in a lot of historical analysis on this question. Perhaps some of the more intellectually minded people have, but I think it's more just the perennial Russian question, you know, what is to be done? But what is to be done requires some sort of model. In America, people seem, or a lot of people come on my show, they want to transform America into Denmark. Do <laughs> good Putin's luck. exiles, do they look at Denmark or Norway or Sweden or Germany or France or the, 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 the Gulf states or Singapore? Do they see them as models for Russia reinventing itself in a, in a post-Putin age? Well, one prominent exile, Mikhail Horokovsky, who was the oil oligarch of the 90s, who got crossed Putin and got locked up for nine years, I believe it was nine years, and then got mm. let out on the condition he wouldn't come back, and he's now based in London. He's in his 60s. His model is something like Switzerland, which has the Canton system of sort of federated, somewhat autonomous but not entirely regions i mean that is one model isn't uh, that slightly absurd though transforming russia into switzerland is 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 even more absurd than transforming the united states into denmark i think it's um well if what we mean is that it'll become kind of a next switzerland i i agree but i think what he harakovsky means by that is just kind of a structural uh model in that sense in other words do you want a federated republic? Do you want something that's more like the United States, which has the relatively strong presidential system? Do you want a parliamentary republic in a kind of classic way? I guess Germany or France or Great Britain are all iterations of those, proportional representation and so forth. But I don't think that they've necessarily all settled on 
that model, I mean, their thinking about it is more strategic and tactical in terms of how they can try to take down uh, Putin. We are speaking with Paul Starobin, the author of an important new book, Putin's Exiles, Their Fight for a Better Russia, most important subject. It's come up before, probably will come up again, the idea of reforming Russia, of making it perhaps more democratic, more inclusive, fairer, more liberal, more just. Uh, I want to remind everyone when it comes to liberalism that Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, does a great job covering all sorts of new themes, ideas, debates amongst liberals of one kind or another. Going to write, are going to run a short video about Liberties, this quarterly journal of culture and politics, which actually does have a lot of stuff from uh, Russia uh, from time to time. And then we'll be back with Paul Starobin to talk more about Putin's exiles. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. You can do a lot worse on that front if you want to um, if you want to subscribe to an excellent new journal, Liberties Quarterly. We're speaking with Paul Starobin, the author of Putin's Exiles, Their Fight for a Better Russia. In the first half, Paul, you mentioned a couple of the oligarchs who have turned into major, perhaps powerful Putin critics and exiles, particularly in towns like London. How united are Putin's exiles. How many particularly young liberals find ex-oligarchs uh, or exiled oligarchs to be just as reprehensible as Putin himself and his secret policemen? Not that united. I mean, this has been, generally speaking, the curse of uh, rec Russian exiledom. I mean, probably the best historical example of peril would be the so-called white Russians uh, loyal to the Tsar, who left Russia after the Russian Revolution. Lenin, Bolsheviks murdered the Tsar. They got out, and then they, you know, spent most of their days uh, in various places, just mourning the loss of the Tsar, wishing for his return. But smaller and smaller factions and fragments. There's some danger of that happening now, I believe, and it's unfortunate. Uh, but it's a question of egos to some degree, different agendas. I mean, we can get into the Navalny group if you'd like, uh, but there hasn't been a lot of uh, cooperation, practically speaking. You mentioned, we've mentioned Navalny a couple of times. Uh, the news today is that Russia has issued a warrant for two of his lawyers. Um, he appears from time to time. He's now in the Arctic Circle. He appeared last month smiling. Mm -hmm. um, he seems, of course, on one level to be a, an, an incredibly brave man. How significant is he in your mind? And how do Putin's exiles think of him? Is he the guy, if, for, for many particularly young exiles, if, if, if Putin is overthrown? Yes, I think he's the guy. Uh, more number one, more than anyone else, for 
different reasons. One is he has some charisma. Uh, there are critics, liberal critics. There used to be more of them who saw him in sort of crude, as a somewhat crude populist or nationalist type. And there was reason that they would see him that way. But he, I think, um, proved to be the most powerful of the opposition leaders and uniquely was able to organize inside of Russia while he was still uh, free in Russia before the poisoning, the certainly looks like a, an attempted assassination attempt by the Russian security services and retains to some degree, his organization does from outside of Russia, some level of, in, of organization inside of Russia. And I don't think there's any other uh, exile uh, leader that can claim that. Are there any historical equivalents? You've talked about the, the civil war in Russia after the revolution mm -hmm. between whites and reds. Um, is Navalny in some ways a, a symbol of the best of white Russia, perhaps? No, I wouldn't call him white Russia because to me that, that associates him with uh, the czar. But there is an interesting strain of that Navalny represents that I think is worth talking about because I think many people, perhaps many of your listeners, have this idea of the opposition and the exiles uh, in Europe and other places as being distinctly secular in nature and mind, and that's not altogether true. So Navalny's saga illustrates that. He was once, by his telling, not a believer at all, and neither were most of the people in his immediate organization. After he was uh, this attempted assassination, he went to Germany, and I have not talked directly to Navalny, but I've talked to people who are very close friends of his, and one of them told me that he kind of became uh, con converted as, as to sort of a Christian gospel uh, way of, of thinking or believing, not the formal, you know, the Orthodox Church, but, you know, something more basic than that. And then when he was brought back to Moscow for trial, uh, various financial charges, basically, he declared himself to be a Christian. I am a Christian. And uh, it, it's a way, you know, I take that sincerely. I think that he is trying to identify with a certain strain in Russia that thinks along the same lines. And there is a tradition of persecution, of course, you know, of Christians. And so he has this saga. He's almost like a living martyr. And it is a kind of um, Christian parable, if you will. You know, uh, he's in the lion's den, and so Putin is the lion. And I think that very cleverly, in some way, situates him well with the Russian people because you know, they also can identify sometimes with this feeling of helplessness or powerlessness. So his coming back to Russia, which he didn't have to do, you know, after this attempt at assassination was a very powerful kind of physical act. And in some way, as he would have it, he embodies Russia. So you asked before about Russianness, Putin, I would say Navalny and Putin are both in a way embodiments of Russia, although in very different ways.
in very different ways, perhaps, in, but also perhaps in, in, in other similar ways, it sounds to me as if he's positioning himself as a, as a kind of Solzhenitsyn for the 21st century, which might be very noble and heroic. He's clearly yeah. a, a remarkably brave man, although I think some people watching or listening might think to themselves, I don't want to be in a state governed by Solzhenitsyn, particularly some of his religious views. Yeah, well, I wouldn't push that too far because uh, Solzhenitsyn, well, okay, Solzhenitsyn came from a quote-unquote white Cossacks-type family and certainly was a believer and I think is sometimes misunderstood. His a great objection to the Soviet Union was its godlessness, you know, his attempted, it's, it's outright rep repression of, of belief and, and believers. Uh, and uh, not to digress, but, you know, Cancer Ward, some of his maybe lesser known books are really all about that. So then he goes into exile in Vermont, but he's also, I think, more than Navalny, a Russian, a chauvinist. I mean, when Solzhenitsyn came back from exile, it was at the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then some years take by. But, you know, he wrote this track that basically outlined this notion of a greater Russia, which in some ways is not all that different from what Putin has kind of adumbrated in his own uh articles and, and historical disquisitions about how Ukrainians are not really Ukrainians, they're Russians. I don't think Solzhenitsyn would say that exactly. And I also don't think he would believe, I know he wouldn't believe because he said so in a forcible sort of incorporation of Ukraine into Russia. But he identified Ukraine, Belarus, and northern Kazakhstan with a lot of Russians as part of this sort of greater Russian. I don't, I have not heard of Navalny speak in quite some those terms. So they're both dissidents, but I don't think that they belong in the same categories exactly. When I was younger, uh, Paul, uh, uh, I was a big fan of some of the work of Richard Pipes, one of America's mm -hmm. great historians mm -hmm. of Russia. He yeah, wrote me two books on a man called Struve, uh, liberal on the left and then liberal on the right. Mm -hmm. If we're to think about Putin's exiles, are there Struvers around? Uh, old <laughs> yeah. aristocrats who are liberals as well, perhaps the sort of men, they tend to be men, although perhaps women, who might have been comfortable in the provisional government? Interesting question. I hadn't quite thought about that. I don't think I met any types that would I would call exactly aristocratic. I did meet an interesting fellow actually in... I jokingly said there were no exiles that I was aware of in Cape Cod, but I did meet with one of Navalny's uh, sort of chief. He's kind of a fundraiser type. He's he's certainly loyal to Navalny in uh, a suburb of Boston, Brookline, and he had sort of set up his uh, a little corner of his mansion in Brookline, and it was a mansion as a kind of chapel or shrine to Navalny, you know, there were all these like co covers of magazines, the Navalny's face on it. And we talked and he offered me a bowl of, you know, chocolates that he's, you know, that came from Moscow, you know, chocolata. It was, it was, uh, I had a little bit of that kind of uh, feeling of, you know, these, some of the exiles are almost like they're still living in, in Russia, you know, that's their mindset. So when you're, served the chocolates from Moscow, and I'm sure there must have been green tea or something like that that maybe also came from there. So um, 
Yeah, you know, Nabokov is sort of an interesting figure as well because he was in exile for many, many years and he wrote quite a great deal about it and and not exactly an aristocrat, but if you remember his father was a you know, was a, an important politician, he was assassinated in in Germany. And so, you know, digressing, but all these kind of murderous stories that are associated with Russians in exile, this has been going on for centuries. Paul, again, some people might be listening to this and thinking, who are we as Americans, particularly given the state of America, to be interfering in Russia, uh, playing up Putin's exiles? Most Western observers of Russia over the last couple of hundred or 300 years have done a particularly poor job picking out virtuous people who might replace one kind of tyrant or another. Mm -hmm. Should we be careful fetishizing Putin's exiles, playing them up, making them into heroes? <laughs> I'm certainly not fetishizing them. That's that's a, a word that evokes uh, uh, a kind of a worship of, of a uh, inordinate degree. Well, no. but the title of your book is Putin's Exiles, Their Fight for a Better Russia. It assumes yeah. that his exiles are good people and that Russia, uh, that, that Putin is bad. Well, I think it's a good fight. Uh, they may not all be good people. You know, I mean, people are complicated, but I think the question of which side you're on is a fair question and one that I entertain. And I think their fight is a good fight. Uh, for reasons I've described, because I think that Putin represents something that is uh, objectively, or if not objectively, in my own uh, assessment. And I've been, I met him 25 or so years ago, just before he became president, something that has been pretty bad for Russia. So, yeah, but I don't fetishize them as being like saints or something like that. That would be the wrong idea. I mean, they're complicated people. Many of them feel quite guilty about what they've done or not done, you know, often in, in the sense that they didn't do enough to oppose Putin, which is also a distinctly Russian theme, right? I mean, this notion of guilt, of communal guilt or shame, we find that in Dostoevsky from Crime and Punishment to the Brothers Karamazov. So, you know, they, they're they mixed in their characters. And I'm sure if you talk to them, they would not necessarily describe themselves as good people or even heroic people. As I mentioned uh, last month, we had the Italian journalist Marzio Mian. I'm not sure if you saw his piece. I did, actually. I saw it. Somebody, a, a friend of mine on in Russia flagged it. Yeah, for it was me. an interesting, was interesting piece because one of the interesting pieces, in contrast, I guess, to your work is that mm -hmm. he reports on people who aren't necessarily in opposition to, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. to Putin. And yeah. you see, just as we tend to, perhaps rather than fetishize, we we in the West tend to orientalize, to use another word, Russia, and imagine it, this, this terrible place. What Mian yeah. found was a fairly normal place full of decent restaurants and people yeah. who were reasonably contented, not unhappy, even with the war in Ukraine. What would you say to people like that? Well, we have to unpack quite a bit there uh, in what you just said. So, yeah, I mean, I've probably been i'm not can't remember exactly where he didn't he like travel down the volga was that yeah his? yeah so yeah i've been down to some of those areas like samara 
for example. Uh, I've been as far to the northeast as Chukotka, which is, you know, from where you can practically see Alaska. I've been to Khabarovsk, which is on the border uh, from across the Amur River from China. I've been to the Caucasus region, Chechnya. I've been all the way up to Murmansk and Skolf and all over Russia, Western Siberia, the oil fields. So, yeah, of course, I mean, you, you, well, I don't know. Nobody's orientalizing the Russians, or at least they shouldn't. I think that's a very old and discredited habit. It's not that I view them as exotic. Uh, my wife is a native Russian speaker. She's from Tashkent in Uzbekistan, and, you know, she can quote Pushkin, but she cannot really speak Uzbek. So, of course, you know, they're not, they're, they come in <laughs> great varieties. I mean, they're not fla flavors of, uh, of ketchup or something, but uh, they're very varied. The men, the women, you know, the old, the young. Uh, there are lots of great restaurants in uh, all over Russia that I've uh, certainly, I, I would agree with a lot of that interpretation. But as far as their attitudes on Putin and the war, though, I think that's kind of complicated. I mean, uh, it's difficult to know exactly because, first of all, how well can you trust a public opinion survey when it is a criminal offense uh, to call the war a war? And people, this is not just like an abstract thing. I mean, people are getting locked up. They just locked up the uh, Boris Kargalitsky, the soci sociologist who's a wonderful cr critic of, of Russia and Putin in a, in a good way for five years for just some kind of sort of nonsense type, type slightly perhaps inflammatory phrase that he made. So people are scared. I don't know what, you know, the Italian journalist and how much he encountered that, but you have to be careful uh, about who you talk to and what you say there are absolutely Putin supporters. Uh, I've talked to many of them. I've been talking to them for 25 years. Some people think Russia needs a strong man, a Silni Chulovek, and Putin represents that because, as I mentioned earlier, Russia is so big, you know, they fear the forces of uh, disorder if they don't have that strong man. But you also have plenty of people, I think, who are pretty you know, they're not too happy with Moscow. I mean, that's an old theme in Russia as well, the further that you get from the center. You've got mothers now who are upset that their mothers and wives, upset that their sons and their husbands have been in uh, deployment on the front lines in Ukraine for so long and are not getting separated. You have non-ethnic Russian peoples. Uh, I read this, this journal from the Lake Baikal region in Siberia, which, uh, you know, all these... You know, the, the conscripts generally are coming from these out-of-the-way areas where their people are being paid by the government, substantial bonuses to sign up for the war and death benefits, you know, to the family if they're killed. That, to me, does not suggest, you know, a war that is terribly uh, popular. So I, I would say, yeah, it's a very mixed picture inside of Russia. I haven't been there since the war started. I, I assuming you, you're not. Would you get a visa if you applied? Would you be free to go there? So my initial uh, idea for this book was something like inside of Russia beyond the cliches, because, uh, you know, there are quite a number of cliches and it's always... Uh, sort different. of like on the, on the Mian uh, uh, well, uh, model behind the new Iron Curtain, although you might have written different sorts of things. Yeah, I'm not so sure about the cult of Stalin. I well, don't he know. Found, I mean, he wasn't he, yeah. he wasn't imagining it. He found a cult of Stalin. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I well, look, Russia has 145 odd million people. Uh, I have no doubt 
among some of them, there's the cult of Stalin. I could also uh, in in Russia easily in Siberia find you know all kinds of you know anarchists and people who would despise anything about Stalin. There are also these raging religious religious style nationalists who are glad you know that Russia is now being cleansed of this liberal scum as Putin calls them. Uh, they're a dissident priests in the Orthodox Church. I spoke to one of them in exile in Batumi, and I'm told, and I think it's true, that there are other priests in Russia now who are not particularly happy. They're not happy at all with what Putin has done or what the patriarch, Kirill, has said, and the bishops have been largely quiet or supportive of the war. There are such people who are you know, opposed. I don't, you know, I can't improve on Dostoevsky then in this regard. I mean, his whole picture of Russia is how the Russians are frequently kind of at, at war, you know, spiritually and, you know, rhetorically speaking with each other, sometimes at the point of the gun. So it's a very varied place. But long story made short, I did put in for my visa. This was before the war. I mean, they know who I am. I used a person who I always use when I need the visa. I went to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs because I wanted them to understand it was I'm a journalist. It's a project. It's a book project and so forth. It was never acted on. So I took that as a no. I pursued it uh, as much as I could, you know, to the highest levels possible. But there was never an answer. So I just took that as a uh, as a no. Probably a compliment in in some ways. I don't know. Um, I mean, what congratulations, Paul, on that front. Um, yeah, and and of course, you're you're absolutely right. It's, it's always very hard to improve on Dostoevsky. I wonder if Donald Trump is elected in uh, oh. November, whether someone, maybe even a Russian journalist, will write a book about Trump's exiles, their fight for a better America. <laughs> um, Putin recently came out. With an argument, I'm not sure how seriously people taking it in terms of his, his the interview he did um, was that he preferred Biden over Trump. What's your analysis of Putin's power? We've been told for years that he's dying. We've been told for years <laughs> there's huge internal opposition. He's going to get overthrown by some mm -hmm. military coup of one kind or another. What's your sense of Putin's security or lack of security in terms of his power in Russia? There's no history in Russia of military-inspired coups, uh, really. Even in the Prigozhin mutiny, as such as it was last year, I mean, he was of course a, died in a plane crash uh, yeah, in August of last year. Right, and as they say, suspicious circumstances. But he was a kind of a warlord. I mean, he had been Putin's caterer and so forth. He wasn't you know, a classic general type. So I don't expect the generals to go after Putin. Uh, I think if it came, it would probably come from elsewhere in the sort of security services, the so-called Siloviki, the men of power, as they are called, of which Putin is one of their numbers. But I haven't, again, really difficult to detect, but I haven't detected that you know, there's some imminent uh, uprising. I think we'll have to wait until after Putin's death. I have no intelligence about his. Will health. he ever die, Paul? Can you confirm that? Putin. He doesn't I'll seem have, as if, have, he seems indestructible. 
Well, there's some interesting, you know, I wrote years ago a profile on Putin and I talked to somebody at the Naval uh, Connected, let's just say, to the, the Navy and, and uh, America who did some interesting research indicating that he had had some kind of a stroke possibly. If you notice in childhood, the way he walks, he sometimes seems to drag one of his feet and his arm seems to be kind of stiff. But, I, you know, I watched this interview with Tucker Carlson and he looked, he looked fine to me. Yeah, he looks better than Tucker Carlson, which isn't saying much. Right? He looks fine. So I don't know. He's 71 years old. But he, yes, of course, he's going to die at some point. I understand. Are you that. sure? Can you confirm that, Paul? No, I guess I really can't confirm that. He might live forever. And, and finally, finally, uh, when he does die, which I think probably most people here wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. mourn him, is he going to have Mussolini's fate and get strung up or is he going to have Lenin's fate and get a mausoleum? <laughs> uh, I don't see, well, it would all depend if who, who Well, it who obviously was, all depends, but speculate. Well, okay. So when Stalin died and not that I see the exact equivalence, there was this vicious scrum for power and we weren't sure who was going to end up on top. And I think something like that could well happen with Putin. And that would be the best chance that these exiles or the Navalny forces, you know, would would have. So that that would be my sense of things that, you know, there would be a vacuum and it would be very, very uh, unpleasant as far as the infighting to fill that vacuum. And we probably don't know the person right now as we're speaking who would come after him. Well, if there are any movie makers out there, was a wonderful film called Death of Stalin. Maybe they can work on a film, Death of Putin. It'll be made. <laughs>